The following message is entitled, The Hourglass of Mercy, Part 2. This message was given during the morning service on July 24, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Sermon title, as we return for the sake of those listening to recording, the sermon title is The Hour of Glass, Hourglass of Mercy, Part 2, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Last Sunday, I began our journey understanding the second of the tri-power manifestations of God in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, and then here they are, the tri-power manifestations of God's sanctifying work in a believer's life. Grace, mercy, and peace comes only from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul is teaching Timothy and the Ephesian church where this epistle landed, where Timothy is pastoring, Paul is teaching Timothy and that church and thus all of us the foundations of power in a local church and in a believer's life. So that's why we do well to spend time on these three virtues. I finished a few weeks ago the doctrine of grace, just glancing it more than anything, and saw that the four evidences that I'm not walking in grace Four characteristics of not walking in grace are legalism, licentiousness, quietism, and pietism. And we examined what grace working is and what it isn't when it's absent in our lives. And these are practical power issues, not saving power issues. He calls Timothy a true child of the faith. So this is teaching for believers. Mercy is the second one. And we are looking at mercy from the perspective of the introduction in the note sheet, lessons from the hourglass of God's mercy. There are believers that are mistaken about mercy. Some think that mercy never ends towards a believer. Eternally, that's true. But the opposite of mercy is judgment. And there are plainly evidences in the Bible of verses towards believers that God can judge us. Not eternally. In fact, just on the top of my head, Peter tells us that judgment begins with the household of God. Okay, that's the church. Judgment's the opposite of mercy. Mercy is the withholding of judgment. So if judgment begins with the household of God, there's a type of judgment a believer can be under. Thus, the hourglass picture in your note sheet. So that's what we're examining. Lessons from the hourglass of God's mercy. Last week, I just gave you two illustrations. Lessons one and two in your note sheet. One of an apostate, Saul, in the Old Testament, and one of a backslidden believer, who got right with God, Jehoshaphat. Lesson number one in your note sheet then, the hourglass of mercy in Saul. What we learned last week was the hourglass of mercy with Saul, there is no mercy for an apostate. There is none. There is no mercy. There is no hope of salvation for an apostate. I, you know, I've been taken to task on that one as I've told you before over the years. I've had pastors, even one pastor recently who told me that um, 
There's always hope for any unbeliever, even an apostate. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jude is, turn over there, Jude is the epistle of apostasy. In my opinion, the most negative book in the entire Bible, Jude, basically 43, I counted, Jude, 43 condemnations in 25 verses. And all God's people said, wow, right? <laughs> There's nothing good about apostates. Okay? Now, what is an apostate? Verse 4, profess believers who pretend to be saved. See, they creep in unnoticed into the church. They're very good. They are able to fake. The Christian life can be faked. Brilliantly faked. At church, not 24-7. But you only need to fake it for two hours on Sunday, maybe three hours on Sunday and an hour on Wednesdays if you were going to be an apostate who's faithful to all four services. Um, four hours, I think I could fake anything for four hours, right? Pretty much, yeah? You're not all nodding up and down. That means yes. Okay. But look at verse 4. Those who were long beforehand, that'd be before the world was created, really, marked out for this condemnation. So before they were ever born, they're doomed. Isn't that what it says? And what they do is they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. One of the four marks of being an anti-grace liver that we looked at, licentiousness. And they deny the master. They deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. So, I don't know how you can get past that. Look at verse 13. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam wandering stars. This is apostates. For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. There's no hope for an apostate. Now you do know, then, like Saul, you wrote it in, right? There's no mercy for an apostate. You can't be saved. Now an apostate looks like a carnal believer. An apostate claims to be saved, lives like the devil. A carnal believer claims to be saved and lives like the devil. What's the difference? The difference is chastisement. Hebrews 12, when we rebel, we'll be chastised. No unbelievers are chastised by God. That's only his children. That's the fundamental difference. Thus, if I'm backslidden, I want to look for signs of chastisement. Otherwise, I'm an... Apostate. Is that so hard to figure out? So I took that pastor to Jude 4 and Jude 13. Luke 14 time. We will not believe what we do not want to believe. And we will believe what only we want to believe. You, you didn't, didn't text that to me, so I... I'm not, uh, yeah. 
Yes. Hebrews 6.6 is an apostate because it's actually mentioned right there. Um, falling away. Yes. And also in Hebrews 4, or Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3. An evil, unbelieving heart in verse 12. See, we can't see the heart of each other. So the only way an apostate can fool a congregation is words and actions. Hebrews 3.12 falls away. Again, the same word as Hebrews 6.6. Apostame. Apostame. Apostasy. And their heart is unbelieving. They're never saved. It's a continual state of unbelief. So I can't see your mind. You can't see my mind. But an apostate knows they're apostates. Okay, it's not like they, oh, I really wanted to be saved. Why are you sending me to hell, Jesus? It's ridiculous. So an apostate knows exactly what they are, and they just don't care. That was Saul. Lesson number two that we learned last week, the hourglass of Jehoshaphat. And really, at his darkest hour, Jehoshaphat looked like Saul. So in your note sheet, there is no mercy for a rebellious leader or believer until they repent. There is no mercy for a rebellious leader or believer until they repent. A verse came to my mind. I know it's left column halfway down in the Gospel of John. I could be lost if I didn't use this Bible all the time. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship. This is worship, by the way, folks, and I've told you, you know, this is Jesus giving us the definition of worship. Um, spirit and truth need to be present to worship. John 4, 24. That's it. Nothing else. Holy Spirit. That's, that should not be lowercase spirit. MacArthur and others say that's the spirit of man. That's nonsense. An unsafe person has a spirit, an internal nature, and they could read the truth. Thereby, that definition that it's unsaved man or man's spirit plus truth would mean that anyone could worship. You have to have the spirit. It says God is spirit. That's the context in verse 24. Right? So why is spirit... In verse 24, after God, not capitalized. It's an interpretive decision. They were bent on defining spirit as your mind. God is mind? Because we know soul and spirit, heart and mind are synonymous terms in the Bible. Soul, spirit, heart, and mind. So God is mind, and those who worship him must worship in mind and truth. That's ridiculous. God is spirit. You have to have the spirit and truth to worship. An apostate rejects the truth, has no spirit. That's why there's no conviction for Saul. He just lied his way out of everything. 
Lesson number three in your note sheet, new material. What is the hourglass of mercy? What are you talking about here, John? Let's fill it in. There is a time limit to God's mercy for the lost and for the saved. There's a time limit to God's mercy for the lost and for the saved. Now let's get really, really scary on this. Next sentence. God doesn't tell us when the sands in the hourglass of mercy will run out for you and me. Isn't that scary? So all we can do, since God doesn't tell us, is look for evidences that it's already running out. Right? Get a cut in my hand. Will it become infected? Don't know. Well, actually, if it gets cut by any object in Skyway, it'll be infected. That I know. Well, how do you know then when it'll get infected? How would I know if it's going to get infected? There's the cut. How will I know? By the evidences. Swelling. Red. Hurts, pus. Is that simple? So lesson four, circle lesson four when we get to it in about 16 weeks. No, hopefully today we will. Um, that's the most important of the 10 lessons. There's 10 lessons on mercy I'm giving you. That's, that's the one. You got to look for the evidences because we don't know when the time runs out. Now you may say, John, does the time really run out? Yes, it does. Psalm 37, turn over there. Let's do a little quick journey on this. Time runs out in different ways for believers versus unbelievers, but turn to Psalm 37 first. Psalm 37, one of my top five favorite passages for God's will for my life, is verses 23 and 24, but we're not looking at those verses. Psalm 37 Verse 25, for I have been young and now I am old, for I have not seen the righteous forsaken. That's mercy. Abandoned. God doesn't abandon ever his children. That's unconditional. So the hourglass doesn't run out on that. If we Christians were to say, oh God, you don't care, you don't love, you've, you've walked away from me. No, verse 25 says no. That kind of hourglass doesn't run out. He doesn't forsake us by walking away from us, even as rebels. That's unconditional mercy. Do you see that in verse 25? Okay. More mercy. Verse 26. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Now notice the conditionality of verse 27. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. It is possible to stop abiding. 
Verse 28, conditionality. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. That's unconditional. That's unconditional. He never will forsake us. But look what comes next. They are preserved forever. But notice now the unbeliever. But the descendants of the wicked will be what? Cut off. There comes a point, even for an unbeliever, mercy ends. Isaiah 55 So, John, you might be saying, what, what's God's unconditional mercy? He's always saved you. You can't lose that. That's unconditional, and we'll see that also in these lessons. And you can't lose your salvation. That's unconditional mercy. So what mercy can I lose? The blessing of grace that causes us to grow, physical preservation, as we'll see. Isaiah 55 Isaiah calls out to the nation of Israel, verse 1, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho! It's really interesting to translate that Hebrew there. <laughs> I don't know if that's really a good translation, but basically it's kind of like, wake up, uh, hear, uh, pay attention, uh, are you listening, that type of thing. Ho! Okay. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Here's mercy, unconditional for anybody. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Notice you don't have to pay for salvation. And that's the analogy here in context. It's free. Verse 2, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. He's not talking about food. This is a passage on mercy. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. This is the offer of salvation. It is free. This is mercy, verse 3. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. You know why Reformed theology is so messed up? They don't understand mercy. Corporately for Israel or personally for believers. The Lord unconditionally and mercifully saved Israel, according to verse 3. It is an everlasting covenant. Reformers think that God's mercy unconditionally ended. They're cast off forever. Oh, really? Well, then we can lose our salvation. Well, God chastised them and gave them over to the nations. Yes, that's practical, conditional loss of mercy. Just like us. Can we lose our salvation? No. Can God conditionally withdraw mercy practically? Yes. God does not, whom he saves, ever cast them off. That's why I'm not a Reformed. That's why I am a believer in literal truth of the word of God as it stands. Is it according to Israel's practical ability to stay saved in verse 3? It's according to what? The faithful mercy shown to who? Who? Verse 3. Who? David. 
If God casts off Israel after saving them and unsaves the nation, I throw my Bible away. You can't confuse unconditional mercy with conditional. Verse 6. Now we get to conditional mercy. This verses 6 and 7 is the hourglass mercy. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he was near. What does that imply? He may not be found. He may not be near. And what causes that for Israel? Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. Repentance. And the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. That's conditional. The saving of the nation of Israel was unconditional. He will restore them in the tribulation. The practical chastisement and judgment of Israel is conditional upon obedience and repentance. Let him return to the Lord, verse 7, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Don't mix the two. Christians reverse them. I, I, I've lost God. He's abandoned me. I'm not saved anymore. Really? So God just throws away unconditional mercy and salvation. Then they come over to chastisement. God's not chastising me. I'm saved. He would never chastise me by removing mercy. Oh, really? Hmm. Are you clear? There's mercy that's unconditional, and then there's the hourglass of practical mercy that can be withdrawn. Matthew 5, still under lesson 3. The Beatitudes, which is, in, as Randy mentioned this, I think it was, or somebody did at church here that I don't remember. Maybe it was Ryan actually mentioned this to me. I don't remember. Anyway, somebody here in the auditorium. Uh, that this is the journey of salvation. Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12. And salvation triggers in right at the end of verse 6 when there's spiritual satisfaction. You have to hunger for righteousness and you get saved. We receive mercy at salvation, Matthew 5, 6. Now notice verse 7 is one of the fruits. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, that's kind of a transition verse because that's true at conversion. We receive the mercy, but it's also conditional. We are to be merciful. That's one of the outworkings, mercy towards others. See? There's a conditionality to this. There's conversion that God does, verses 3 to 7, and then there is the outworking of mercy as an evidence that I'm truly saved, and then other outworkings in verses 8 down to 12. Purity, verse 8. Peacemakers, verse 9. Suffering for the faith, verses 10 and 11. And joy, verses 12. Interestingly, verses 10 to 12 are our Sunday night series. We're to respond with joy and endurance in the face of suffering. Joy is in verse 12. Enduring in the face of suffering, verses 10 and 11. The conditional nature of mercy is we had better be merciful Practically speaking, or mercy towards us practically will come to an end. James 2, 
James chapter 2. Now we get into the issue of believers under judgment. James 2, verse 1, my what? Brethren, talking about the assembly of believers in verse 2, not talking to unbelievers. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, verse 5. These are commands for believers. Verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. That's believers. Can't arbitrarily say, I'm okay because I did this, but I didn't do that. Verse 12, to believers, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The law of freedom, we're free in Christ to live for him. For judgment will be merciless to one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you want the practical judgment of God in your life, seek to not be merciful towards other believers. The four at the beginning of verse 13 connects it to everything in verses 1 to 12. This is for believers. Can we be under judgment then? Yes! Judgment will be merciless. That's the end of the hourglass. And the evidence that I'm in this one, if you want to see just this one evidence in verse 13, how do I know if I'm under the judgment of God practically? You're not merciful towards others. What does that mean? Well, that, that's actually a sermon in and of itself. But to put it simply, we don't love others unconditionally. Okay? So do you see this possible to be under judgment? Not eternal judgment. Practical judgment. Loss of mercy. The hourglass can run out for you. Lesson four. We can only tell when mercy has run out. So we don't know when the clock runs out for us. Okay? As believers. We don't know when that's coming, that time. God is sovereign. But what we do know is lesson four. We can only tell when mercy has run out by the consequences. By the consequences. Of rebellion and unrepentant behavior. You can only tell when mercy has run out by the consequences of rebellion and unrepentant behavior. For the lost, letter A, at some point the spirit no longer convicts of sin and hell when truth is continually resisted. For the lost, at some point the spirit no longer convicts of sin and hell when truth is continually resisted. That's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the people of Israel did against Christ. We can't do that. Only the lost can blaspheme the Holy Spirit that way. Remember the Lord finally in the Gospels turned to parables, stopped teaching the masses? They'd renounced. Remember standing in trial, he wouldn't answer? Mercy ended. We see this continually in the Gospels with Jesus. He preaches, they reject, goes to another town. The apostles as well shake off the dust. Loss of mercy. 
Jesus said repeatedly in the Gospels, now is the time of salvation. Why is now the time of salvation? Two reasons. You may only be convicted now, and you may die. But for our purposes, since 1 Timothy 1-2 is talking about Christian mercy, receiving his mercy to grow, let's go to letter B. For the saved, rebellion brings divine chastisement, which can even include premature death. Letter B. For the saved, rebellion brings divine chastisement, which can even include premature death. Death is the end of chastisement. You're going to need another piece of paper if you want to write down these evidences that mercy is drawing close, close on me. If I'm being drawn into merciless behavior from God, practically speaking, if I'm under chastisement from God, you're going to need another piece of paper. But the end of the game is death, okay? That's the final stroke of merciless behavior from God. That's where all the chastisements lead. From little chastisements for rebellion to big chastisements, they, God is directing the believer towards physical death. That's the end game of merciless believer. The hourglass, merciless God towards believer. The hourglass, the last sand runs out when God executes the believer. So I gave you letter B, the last stage. Mercy ends at premature death. Oh, but we all go to heaven, so how is that God judging? Because he doesn't want us to die prematurely. It's not God's desire for us to be chastised unto premature death by God. He wants us to live as long as we can in his grace and power for the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay? So what are the evidences? Since I don't know when I'm going to be potentially, and I'm not even clear if I am in rebellion, so what are the evidences I'm in rebellion, and what is the specific signs in my life that I'm under chastisement? Well, I just mentioned that one about death. Let's just quickly look at 1 Corinthians 5. These aren't in your notes, Jolima. Don't be frustrated. 1 Corinthians 5. My sermons are always in a state of continuity and flux, which means I'm never done with them. And sometimes I give her notes for translation, and then I'm continuing the process upstairs and add to it. So, 1 Corinthians 5, this is a believer, verse 1, is actually reported there is among you, that's believers, Immorality is such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. So he's comparing believers to Gentiles, believers to unbelievers. Someone has his father's wife. That's incest, Levitically. Stepmother. And then he really lambasts the congregation. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead. Oh, wow, there's two evidences right there that I'm under the judgment of God as a believer. Arrogance and not mourning over sin. I'd write those down. It's interesting, he goes from the absolutely sodomizing believer in verse 1 to spending an entire verse on the congregation that refused to church discipline him. One of the biggest criticisms I've received in my pastoral ministry in 35 years over and over again is it's so unloving. How can you kick people out through church discipline? I don't kick anybody out through church discipline. 
They leave. We confront sin, we offer a plan to restoration, but they quit. Never once would we ever say to a church disciplined believer, get out of here, unless they're doing something immoral or illegal here. You know, if someone's waving a gun as a believer, I'm going to shoot somebody. We'll say what? Get out of here, right? And then we duck. Don't kick people out. We're supposed to mourn. This guy needs to be disciplined in verse 1. What? So the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Well, that sounds like kicking out. Well, yeah, he must have been doing something really bad right in the congregation. Flaunting it. Flaunting his sodomy. Certainly there are exceptions to this where you would just ask them to leave if they're not going to repent. But we've never been in a situation like this where gross immorality is presenting right in a congregation right in front of us. Somebody who's going to do something lascivious like that, we'd ask him to leave, right? So Paul takes over the church discipline. Verse 3, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him. See, you can judge a believer. There it is. Mercy ends right there. Verse 3, Who has committed this as though I was present. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you assemble, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. So he's not there. He's telling him what to do. This is apostolic authority. We would never, as a church or elders, be able to tell another church what to do. But Paul could tell any church right now on the planet what to do if he was here. Apostles rule everything. Long distance, he carries it out. Verse 5. With the power of our Lord Jesus, notice I have decided is not in the Greek. It's, it's italicized. Frustrating when they add to the English. I don't know why they do that. It's a continuous sentence. The power of the Lord Jesus to deliver. This is an evidence of the power of God. Such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's the end game of rebellion so that the spirit may be saved. See, it's, it's causing him to be turned over to Satan so Satan can kill him. And we're not to confront sin in verse 2? I don't think so. I think we are. 1 Corinthians 11. Another verse on how you, you want to you fast track yourself to execution in the body of Christ. This is the end game. We're not looking yet at the more minor or less deadly chastising evidences. We're looking right at the very end of the ball game, the bottom of the ninth. Verse 28, the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 28, for a man must examine himself, so in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You're supposed to examine yourself. Dakimadzo, it's a present imperative. Judge yourself concerning sin every single time we have communion. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body. You're to judge your body. What does that mean? Confront your own sin and repent. If you don't do it, God will judge you. Mercy ends in verse 29. Yes, mercy can end for a believer. Judgment is the opposite of mercy. And for this reason, here is the evidences. A progression of death in verse 30. Weak, sick, sleep. Totally apart from any decision you're making in your regular affairs of life, okay? Like an alcoholic. What, what do I mean by that? Well, an alcoholic could drink themselves to death. This is divine retribution going on here. Drinking myself to death is me killing myself. 
okay? I could be suicidal and walk across the street in front of a bus. That's not this verse. I could starve myself to death. That's suicide. That's not this verse. This is divine, physical attack apart from deadly choices that I'm making. And it's triggered simply by refusal to examine in verse 28. Three stages, weak, sick, dead. Sleep is dead. It's a progression. God doesn't just instantly execute. It's a progression of miraculous, deadly things in the life that have no context text with me one for one causing it. I slice my wrist and bleed out. That's not this. That's me causing me to kill myself. This is retribution for lack of examination. Verse 31, if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are what? Verse 32, discipline. That's believer judgment. It's discipline. Why does he discipline us? To get us right with God. Now, very quickly, let's finish this list off. Since no car wash awaits, Number one, not in any order. We've seen death is the end game. Let's see what other evidences are that I'm under the merciless judgment of God. 1 Corinthians 14, confusion. Spiritual confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. Everybody in the worship service in the Corinthian church was spouting off craziness. Glorifying Satan, speaking in false tongues, doing it all at the same time. So what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14, 33? For God is not an author of akatastia, confusion, chaos, instability, anarchy. Literally, not downstanding, cannot stand spiritually. Totally out the window, collapse mentally and spiritually. I don't know what's going on. That's chastisement from God. Because the opposite of that is in verse 33. What is the opposite of it? But of peace. Chaos, fear, anxiety are evidences that I am unrepentant and God has put me under judgment. Ephesians 4, number 2. So that's moral confusion and fear. Next, Ephesians 4, 22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Growing self-deception and lust. Uncontrollable lust and lying to myself and lying to others. Deceit is lying. That's your old nature. If you don't lay it aside, you're under judgment. Lust running crazy. In any of the six areas of lust in the Bible, not just sexual. Deceit, lying. I can tell a backslidden Christian who's under chastisement right away. They lie to me. They lie constantly. They're trying to fool me. They're trying to make me be off my guard when it's really God they're in trouble with. You can lie to me all you want, folks. Anyone here, you can lie to me all you want. It's not going to cause me to be killed or be under the judgment of God. I can be fooled easily. You can't fool God. Your old nature is marked by those two. So moral confusion and fear number one. Lust 
out of control and growing lying and deception in your life. You're trying to throw people off the scent by lying to them. Those are evidences you're under the judgment of God. First Thessalonians 5, number 3. First Thessalonians number 5. Never fails. Never fails. Two things happen when a Christian is under the merciless judgment of God. Verse 19, no longer convicted. Do not quench the spirit. He's talking about rebels. In 1 Thessalonians 5, if I said 1 Corinthians, I apologize. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. He's talking about the unruly in verse 14. Do quench the spirit. Never fails. This always happens. No longer convicted. Get nothing out of the sermon. So number two, not only hardened heart and no conviction for in these two verses, but secondly in verse 20, despise prophetic utterances. That's preaching. It's a New Testament way of describing preaching. Paul defines it in 1 Peter 2 or 2 Peter 2 as preaching, prophetic utterances. Despise. Doesn't mean you're giving the finger to the preacher. That's too blatant and obvious. No, this is just you relegated to totally unimportant. It's irrelevant. That's what that means to despise. Treat it as if it's nothing. So what happens? No conviction, start to drop out of services. Always, inevitably, a sign you're under the merciless judgment of God. So, moral confusion, fear, inexplicable physical illnesses, hating, preaching, unteachable. Mm-hmm. Growing anger toward it. Lies, lust out of control. This is a list you should be making. James 4, just a few more and we'll finish up. James 4. These are axiomatic. You know what that word that means? This is a law. You can't break these laws. This is what God gives you and I over to when we're in rebellion. James 4, in its judgment, it is mercy, hourglass running out. It is the walk of death. And notice the one I just mentioned from Ephesians 4 is in verse 2. You lust and do not have. This is continuous state of unrelenting lust. And remember, there's six areas. If you don't remember those six areas of lust in the New Testament, come and see me. This is a state of being. You lust, verse 2. So you commit murder. That's hate. There it is. Remember, you are supposed to, when you have mercy, you're merciful towards others. So write down hate. I hate people. I wish they'd leave me alone. You're under the judgment of God. There it is. Write it down. Hate. You're jealous of others. Envious. There you go. They have it better than I do. I hate them. I can't stand them. I've got to stay away from them. I'm going to lie to them. I'm lusting. All driven together. Envious. Relational breakdown. Next. Fighting and quarreling in the congregation. Fights, quarrels, relational breakdown. You've got to separate from everybody, saved and unsaved. You're under the judgment of God. The hourglass is running out. Prayer life dies. You do not have because you do not ask. That's asking for righteous things. Prayer life. Righteous prayer life dies. Write that down. That's a sign. Your prayer life is shot. You're under the merciless hourglass emptying judgment of God. And then number three, you switch your prayer to testing God prayers. You're seeking to have your lusts fulfilled. Give me, Jesus. Verse three, you ask and do not receive. Unanswered prayer. He will not give you the wicked things you want. God has abandoned me. Chapter five. 
Sickness now at this point begins. Verse 14. Sickness begins in verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14. This is rebellion sickness, not any old sickness. Why? Because the elders show up and pray in verse 15 and they get restored. That's not a guarantee in any other context in the Bible where you pray you'll be healed physically for just a physical illness. It says, the prayer offered in faith of the elders, verse 15, will restore. That means that the sickness in verse 14 was caused by sin. I can only tell you this. If you have unrelated illness with all this other judgment characteristics in your life, you had better repent and get to the elders. Or you're going to die. Well, how do you know it's because of sin? Look at the rest of verse 15. The Lord will raise him up, and if is the if third class condition of surety, since he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. At this point, when you're absolutely dying because of your sin, miraculously, no insurance, no doctor's appointments, no tests are going to heal you. And it is not self-consequential illnesses. I've done this, therefore this resulted. This is miraculous illness. Then you're dying. Mercy's ending. Lastly, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. It's a pretty plain list. It's very easy. You don't know when God's tipping the hourglass over, but you can see the evidence is when it has been tipped over and you're starting to die. Hebrews 10, excuse me, not Hebrews 11. Hebrews 10. If we go on willfully sinning, verse 26, after being saved, receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's a statement of salvation, there no longer remains a sacrifice to sin. You can't find sin removed by any other way than repentance. If you're willfully sinning, that means you're not repenting. And you're not going to find any sacrifice. There's no other way but through Christ and repentance. Verse 27. Then here's the last evidence of judgment. Terrifying expectation of judgment. The person is terrorized by the Spirit into thinking they're going to hell. No apostate has this. Only believers. We're not talking about doubts. I have a little doubt that I'm saved. I kind of sometimes wonder. I've had people say that to me. Well, sometimes I wonder whether I'm saved. That's not this. This is terror. It says terror. This is screaming terror. This is keeping me awake at night terror. I'm going to hell. I have no evidence of conversion in my life. Look what's going on. I'm, I'm trashed. I'm filled with moral confusion, fear, inexplicable, inexplicable physical illnesses. I have a complete loss of assurance. I have holy terror in my life. I hate preaching. I'm angry at people. I hate people. I'm envious towards people. I'm filled with lust. I'm lying to other people. I'm praying for things I shouldn't be praying for and God's not giving it to me. And I don't ask for things that I should be asking that God would give to me. I'm not convicted of sin. Deception is growing. You pile up that list and get that list nice and big you're very, and I am very close to dying. How sad. When what restores the hourglass, look up here, and turns it back over for you, 
is if you simply would be truthful and repent of everything you're messing around with. Nowhere does it say in the Bible his mercy is restored when you are victorious over all sins in your life. There'd be no mercy for us. Mercy is restored when you humble yourself before God. Repent and, Matthew 7, truly with no strings attached, no deception and lying, want God's will for your life no matter what. And that, dear believers, is extremely rare in the body of Christ. No strings attached. I want God's will no matter what. Father, it's clear as a bell when we're running out of sand. The problem is, and the terrorizing thing is, we don't know when that hour is coming, so we have to do self-examination. And lesson four is the foundation of hourglass mercy, dear Lord. Oh, that you would wake us up to see ourselves as you see us. Oh, Lord, have mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.